You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where it's just plain luck that I stumbled across a song that not only fits into the theme of the show, but also has a tangential relationship to another show I do. Get it? It's tangent. It's Imagine Dragons. You get it. Welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. My name, as always, is Sean Engel, and my job, as always, is to cover the Green Lantern comics, starting with cover date June 1990 and ending with cover date November 2004, while all the time putting a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, my two favorite Green Lanterns. And in my effort to cover all the books from this era, I'm going to start off, of course, with the Green Lantern comics. This time, Green Lantern number 138, which starts up... Another what might possibly be another written-for-the-trade run of books. This one's going to take Kyle and new ring-wielder Jenny Lynn Hayden off Earth to deal with the Palestinian conflict. (laughs) No, it's not really the Palestinian conflict. It's it's an analog for the Palestinian conflict, and since I don't know what's going to be going on with this it could be a horrible analog for it let's keep our fingers crossed and hope it isn't let's also keep our fingers crossed that the ending to the circle of fire storyline isn't bad either well we'll just have to find out it started up with a great issue by brian k vaughn and it's ending with an issue by brian k vaughn what are my opinions going to be of it well you are just going to have to listen and find out It does wrap up what happened with all the various Green Lanterns and gives a conclusion to it. Whether it be a satisfying one is kind of up to you to decide. But I'll be getting into that, as well as some of your emails and also uh, some wonderful new promos that I hope to be playing today. So, I hope you all sit back, relax, and enjoy the rest of this show while I go partake of a refreshing beverage to help me through this one. Be back in a few. Here at Quark's, customer satisfaction is our primary concern. I'd say we just found our way into a wormhole. I'm Kira Norris. Lieutenant Commander Worf reporting for duty, sir. You're the best crew any captain ever had. This may be the last time we're all together. This will shortly become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. Starfleet, one of our most important posts. It is quite simply, Commander. The journey you have always been destined to take. 
sensors are not functioning. You've lost all contact with the space station. What is happening out there? Shields up. Damage report. Battle stations. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Listen to the prophets. A Deep Space Nine Two True Freaks presentation with Sean Engel and Andrew Layla. And now with 100% more Paul Spataro. In 1977, the world changed. The film industry was transformed. The popular culture rocked. And young minds forever altered. Star Wars arrived. And nothing would ever be the same again. Though everyone wasn't affected in the same way, everyone was affected. This is my Star Wars story. My Star Wars Story, monthly at MyStarWarsStory.com And we're back. And what you heard just there was the brand new promo for My Star Wars Story, a new podcast hosted by Scott Rifen of the Dinner for Geeks podcast, Go check it out over at Two True Freaks. It's a podcast where he's interviewing various personages, creators, podcasters, friends, whomever, to ask them about their love of Star Wars. So far as the time of this recording, he only has two episodes out, one with his friend Ryan from Dinner for Geeks and the other one with Scott Gardner, but they're both incredible, incredible listens, very in-depth conversation, and really a fun, nostalgic look back at the entire the entire idea of Star Wars and how it shaped people from that era and how it's shaping people now, where Star Wars is going. It's, it's a really great podcast. I definitely encourage you to go check it out. You can find it at MyStarWarsStory.com, and I think you can also find it by now on the Two True Freaks website as well, so definitely check it out there. But with new promos out of the way, and since I need to get to some of these because I've had some guests on the past couple of times, I'm going to start in with reading your emails. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and my first email comes from my good friend, the Great White North, Scott Davis, who also was able to make it to the LanternCast 200th episode, and he did a bit of recording with them as well. That was really fun. I didn't get to talk to Scott, unfortunately, but it was good to hear his voice on the show. So this one comes in from Scott, and it says it's entitled The Annuals and New Core. He says, hi, Sean. By now, your listeners probably bummed to hear that I have another email to you. No, I could not imagine that at all, Scott. It's always great to hear from you. Hopefully, they can press the 15-second skip on their iPhones in order to get to the good stuff, which your excellent, which is your excellent commentary on this week's issues. Well, we'll... That's That remains to be seen, Scott. That remains to be seen. He says, anyway, I'm having fun reading these issues. I wanted to pass along my thoughts. The new core, number one and two. This was a fun story written by Chuck Dixon. The Cadillac convertible on page three and four could possibly be the best ring construct ever. Yeah, Kyle was pimping in that one, yeah. The artwork in these issues is fantastic, and the coloring is great, too. I'll be honest, the story lost me a few times when the story is being explained by the villain in the brain. I guess that's great that we have another Earth Green Lantern. Anya is Russian. I don't think she's remembered too well after this, though. Great point. I think that Hamrun definitely killed himself on page 42. Dixon created some really great characters in this issue, and it's too bad that they didn't make it past this story arc. 
overall, I really enjoyed it, and I really need to pick up more Chuck Dixon stuff. Oh, I can't agree with you more there. Did I hear that you gave up on coffee for Lent? How'd that work out for you? Up here in Canada, we douse our cereal with coffee each morning to get through the cold winter. Well, to let you know, for Lent, the uh, coffee thing went okay. I gave up all caffeinated beverages, and I made it through. It it wasn't pleasant at times, especially working late nights, but you know, I I managed. Next next time, I'll give up something easier, like heroin. You know, it it, it probably would work better. Anyway, Scott continues, Green Lantern Annual number one. This issue was brutally bad, but hilarious at the same time. Could this also be one of the worst issues I've ever read? Maybe. This whole thing about Eclipso possessing everyone in the story sucks. The cover is hilarious, though. To explain it in the least explicit way, it looks like Hal is punching the snot out of Carol after she gave him some, quote-unquote, lip service. You know what I mean. I totally agree with you that it looks like Eclipso is getting ready to perform on himself in this in his masturbatory chair, copyright 2014 Sean Ingle already deserved. And the fun doesn't stop there. We get to page 11, panel 3, and we have Carol covered in completely white, jizzy substance. Yeah, I didn't really want to go into, into that anymore. It was not a pleasant panel. How the heck did all this get past the comics code? The Guy Gardner Shakespearean pose on the page on top of page thirty nine was hilarious. To wrap this up, the two pages of Hal beating the crap out of Star Sapphire on pages forty five through forty six are very disturbing. The image on page forty six shows a badly beaten Carol by a ruthless Hal Jordan. Awful. Yeah, despite some of the misogyny and wonky art that we got in uh, Green Lantern Annual number one, the entirety of the uh, Eclipso storyline, I guess, was mildly regarded as being okay, especially when it comes to the next annual, which we'll be getting to here. Bloodline's annual crossover was very weird and extremely violent. It was a bit hard to read, and you did a great job reviewing this issue, and it was hilarious when you started skipping pages near the end. Ugh, this Hal and Aresia relationship creeps me out every time they mention it. You were hilarious joking about the guy getting penetrated from behind on page 32. Ugh. Didn't want to remember that about, uh, bloodlines, but now I can't get it out of my brain. It looked uh, I just looked up Nightblade's biography and I'm sorry to say that he died in Infinite Crisis number 7. Aw, poor Nightblade. I'm sorry to disappoint all your listeners with this news. Strange issue. <laughs> it was bloodlines. What were you expecting? Yeah. Green Lantern Annual number 3 says, this Elseworlds crossover was intense. It's such a weird concept to have the heroes as Nazis and I agree it's hard to know who the good guys actually are in this story. I'll have to admit I lost a few times and had to reread a lot of the story. You did a great job summarizing this issue, though. Overall, it was an interesting story and very well done. It was crazy when Green Arrow got shot in the head by Guy on page 9, and I shuddered when Guy said he was about to shoot an arrow through John's balls on page 32. Yikes. Yeah, that was pretty intense. Um, yeah, flaming John balls, not pleasant. I actually like how progressive the story is. Who would have thought that Carol and John would be sleeping together in this crazy Nazi era? Yeah, uh, uh, It was one of those things where it's a difficult thing to say that you enjoy reading it because the subject matter is inherently a, antithetical to being enjoyable. You're supposed to be rooting for these people who are Nazis or, you know, you know I guess I guess it's a, a, a clever trope that Carol and John are sleeping together because if this were actually occurring, that thing would be very verboten. 
but yeah, it's it's a tough issue for me. He finishes up saying, I really enjoyed Michael Bradley on your show too. He's always provides a great insight. If you like uh, Michael Bradley and I chatting, maybe you should go check out the uh, Parallel Lines podcast. It's a Tangent Universe podcast. I enjoy it. Finally, he says, Green Lantern Annual number four. This was a great annual about Hal and Kyle switching lives through their batteries. I really enjoyed it. And I agree with you, it sucks how easily Warrior was taken out by Hal. The flashback to Showcase 23 and Green Lantern number 54 was awesome. Alex's lingerie looks pretty good, but I can hear your voice saying that you are very disappointed. Overall, I really enjoyed this issue. I'm trying to think. I think this is the one where Alex had the impossibly ridiculous lingerie that should not be able to maintain its shape in any way, shape, or form unless there's some sort of adhesive being used. Yeah, I understand when artists want to draw women in sexy lingerie, but it needs to at least function correctly. It's kind of like... Oh, who is it? Emma Frost from the X-Men. Some of the stuff that she wears is just ridiculous on the covers of that. Could not function in real life. And it turns a person who is drawn incredibly attractive to just being laughable. So maybe that's just me. Anyway, Scott finishes up saying, Thanks, Sean. I'm really glad you're reviewing these issues in addition to the flagship Green Lantern series. Have a great week, Scott. Well, thanks for writing in, Scott. It's great to always get your emails. I appreciate you writing in, and I appreciate you talking to me about these annuals. The next letter we have is from Tom Panarese. He's the host of Taking Flight, a Robin and Nightwing podcast, which you can find over at the Batman Universe, as well as Pop Culture After David and In Country, which now can be found over at Two True Freaks. Tom's got some real estate over here as well, and his podcasts are well worth listening to, and a great addition to the Two True Freaks lineup. But Tom writes with the title, Episode 129 and Kyle's Creepy Editor. He says, Sean, it's been years since I've read the Judd Winnick Green Lantern run. I remember liking it, but don't remember many of the details, especially the scene that you and Thomas were discussing with the creepy gay editor of the magazine Kyle's working for. Thomas and Wright, saying that's probably details or maxim, because those magazines were huge back in the early 2000s, and Details was one of the ones that was more, I don't want to say hipster, but it was definitely for people who considered themselves cooler than the frat boys who were, quote-unquote, reading Maxim. And by reading, I think that means uh, spraying their DNA over some of the pictures. Yes, we understand. <clears throat> Moving on, the way Winnick portrays the editor, though, it makes me wonder if this was based on a real person or a real experience that Winnick had. Maybe he once had to deal with a guy like this, or had a friend who dealt with someone like this who decided to take a jab at that person. I'm probably giving Winnick too much of the benefit of the doubt here, but it's not completely out of left field to have a person like this in a magazine or at any job, especially in the late 1990s and early 2000s, where there were so many douchebags being promoted before they were mature enough to handle any promotion. I don't disagree with you at all. I'm still dealing with some people like that in... And my position work. It's it's not just in publishing. Trust me, folks. He says, anyway, another great episode. By the way, Thomas is right. The cardigans are worth checking out. Love Fool is from the soundtrack to that Romeo and Juliet movie with Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes. An awful movie based on an awful, awful, awful play by Shakespeare. 
I mean, at least the 1960s version, we got to see Juliet's boobs. This, ugh. All the best, Tom. Well, Tom, I will agree with you that it was nice seeing, oh, what was her name? Um, I think it was Olivia Hussey. Let me check IMDb. Yep, Olivia Hussey. You got to see her boobs in that. So, yeah, Claire Danes, not so much. And, yeah, this was kind of the movie that turned me off for a long time with Leonardo DiCaprio. I know Tom has said quite frequently that he's a big fan of Shakespeare but hates Romeo and Juliet. And since he's obviously an educator and teaches a lot more of this and probably knows a lot more than I do, I'll give him his uh, opinion on that. That's perfectly legitimate. But I also wrote back Tom and told him that as of recording of this and prior to this, I've released issue or episode 137 where Terry came out and we found out that this character wasn't gay. So it was... I think we just, I think I discussed it on that episode that it was kind of it kind of felt like they were playing a bait and switch that they did kind of portray the person as a gay character to make you think that and really didn't show anything that would lead you to believe otherwise and it was one of these things where it's putting all this out to make you think that and then turning around and saying no he's not and making you look like the person who was misinterpreting things when they were intentionally showing things to make you feel that way. It's not It's not like I feel frustrated or betrayed by the magazine, but it just, the way they put it in issue 129 versus the way they put it in issue 137, to me, seemed to be vastly different. But that's neither here nor there. But I think I'm going to wrap this up with one more email. This one comes from the man, the myth, the legend. Yes, my good friend over at Earth's Destruction Directive and the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. I hope you guys enjoyed our Halloween episode. That was fun to record. It'll be interesting. you know. As of the time, I don't know what's going on with it. Uh, I know we're all recording different, different stories with a similar theme or a similar title. It'll be interesting to see what uh, each of us comes up with, but I hope you enjoyed that. This one, I, like I said, is from Luke Giaconetti, and he's got a little bit of intro before the actual comments that relate to the show. But uh, the ones that relate to show is, I also, also, I don't mean a nitpick, but on your episode with Thomas DJ talking about Greenlander versus Aliens, you said that René Arbergenois, who play, played Lumiere in Beauty and the Beast. Just FYI, it was Jerry Ordbach who played Lumiere. That's right. Lenny Briscoe is everyone's favorite French candelabra. Always thought he and the feather duster French maid was hilarious. Anyway, let me know about Ultraman and we'll figure out a time to record. Well, obviously I'm kind of slipping up and telling you that's what I'm going to be doing with Luke eventually. But yeah, Luke, that was one of those things where I didn't catch it in editing and I didn't catch it when I spoke. I knew I should have said that it was Jerry Orbach and I remember that. And I guess I misinterpreted because... René Aubergeois, or however you pronounce his name, Odo, was actually the character who played the chef in Little Mermaid, you know, the one who was cooking up the fish and chopping up the things and frightening Sebastian the crab in there. So I, I mixed the two sort of character actors up. But yes, I also got pegged by uh, Stephen Rogers, or Stephen J. Rogers over on Facebook about that, and he he, he wrote me at, on Facebook to tell me about that. So 
thank you folks for keeping me honest. I'm, I'm glad that I've got people out there who will at least, you know, write in to tell me when I messed up because Lord knows I don't check, check my facts well enough. So thank you all. But that's going to do it for email right now. I'm going to close that up and go ahead and move into issue number one this time out. This one is going to be Green Lantern number 138. Green Lantern number 138 had a cover date of July 2001 and a release date of May 2nd, 2001. The cover price was $225 US and $375 in Canada. The title was Away From Home Part 1, and the writer, of course, again, was Judd Winnick. Penciler this time out, Dale Equisham, Inger Rodney Ramos. Letter Chrissy Leopolis, colorist and separations were done by Bruce Bowman. Associate editor was Michael Wright, and the editor was Bob Shrek. The cover was done by Daryl Banks and Rich Faber. About two days ago, Green Lantern Kyle Rayner received a call from John Jones, the Martian Manhunter, about a diplomatic mission to Alderaan, uh, sorry, Tendax, that required Green Lantern to attend. Since Hal Jordan was indisposed, and the other members of the League were unavailable as well, Kyle relents and says he'll take on the mission, provided his girlfriend can come along. After contacting Terry Berg about his impending vacation, wink, Cal and Jenny head out into deep space, happily holding hands the whole while. The duo banter back and forth about their relationship, until they figure out that they need to make it to Tendax in a reasonable amount of time, necessitating a couple of warp-equipped mech suits to speed them on their way. Sometime later, the Lanterns arrive at Tendax, a veritable pleasure planet that, about 30 years ago, was plunged into a massive Israeli-Palestinian... Wait, no, sorry... Matiak Magdam conflict over the setup of a homeland for the Matiak in the Magdam's territory. However, after five years without any violence, the two factions have come together to sign a peace treaty, and this is where Green Lantern comes in. After the meeting with the elected leader, Mr. Elias, Kyle and Jenny spend a little leisure time on one of the topless beaches, a state dinner with Elias' family, and some Xbox time with his children. But while Kyle is getting pwned by Alias' daughter on Halo, Jenny discusses Alias' terrorist past with him. He mentions that he did terrible things in the past, but he hopes that what he's doing now will be his legacy. Cut to the celebration of the treaty signing, where all manners of aliens are assembled to sing the praises of the new era of peace. Unfortunately, the merriment is broken up by a bomb that was planted on a school transport that exploded just before reaching the ceremony center. All the children on board were killed, as were a hundred near the explosion, even more injured. Realizing that this act will end the peace that was so hard won, Jenny and Kyle pledged their service to Minister Elias, saying that they will stay and do whatever they need to do. see where this is going and looking back at it from 13 years in the future it's going to be interesting how to deal with the subject of terrorism and the quote-unquote israeli-palestinian conflict in this book or the matiak magdam conflict whatever it's we get the metaphor guys it's not so heavy-handed yet but i do have a sneaking feeling that it could turn that way very quickly hopefully that won't be the case 
Plus, we're also getting another book that's written for the trade here is that's simply entitled Part 1 of an X Number of Books story. So it's not that it's disappointing, and it still doesn't feel as badly decompressed as a lot of stories from this era do, but it is depressing that we're getting more written-for-the-trade type stories than just good stories that tend to follow the ongoing narrative. Just write stories. Don't feel that you have to write them to have them collected, but maybe that's something that was pushed upon the writers at the time. Uh, the art in here from Dale Eaglesham is much better this time around. Uh, last time we saw him in, what, 136 was just painfully bad in places. So I'm thinking he's got the characters look a lot more realistic, especially uh, his artwork does really shine in certain portions of the book. But speaking of artwork that shines, I don't think you have any complaint from me that the cover is one of those places. This is a really great cover done by uh, Rich Faber and Daryl Banks, I think. Is it Rich Faber? Let me check my notes again. One second. Yes, Rich Faber and Daryl Banks. Really good image of Ginny. I like the look of her costume. It's got a lot of design elements that are very similar to Kyle's. Uh, the coloring is the sort of white and black with the sort of yin-yang yellow uh, symbol where essentially Jenny's boob window would be on her old jade costume. But I like it. The only negative thing that I would have is her her wrists seem to have these sort of metallic, metallic collars around them. It looks kind of like handcuffs that she may have broken out of. It's just kind of odd. Plus, you know, she's got fingerless gloves, which I guess isn't any weirder than Kyle's gauntlet. So, yeah, it's still the 90s and artistic design for the Lantern characters. Pages 1 through 3, I kind of glossed over the conversation between Kyle and John here, but it's really fantastic. It's, it's a bunch of panels clipped between Kyle and John speaking about who's going to be at this diplomatic mission or who's going to take on this diplomatic mission. And it goes kind of like this. Um, they contact it. And, you know, John says they contact the JLA seeking the Green Lantern. And Kyle says, Hal Jordan, huh? Martian Manhunter says, yes, I told him he was unavailable. Then we get a great nine panel grid. That's just the images of their faces. And it's great because Kyle's sitting there eating some potato chips and his face changes throughout a bit. But the Martian Manhunters is statted throughout pretty much all the panels. And he's just got this clip dialogue as Kyle is talking back to him. It's, and you told him he couldn't, he couldn't make it away. He says, and you told him about me and John says, yes. And then they ask for Superman and John says, yes. And you said he was busy and John says, yes. And then they ask for you to come and Again, John says yes, and he declined. And, you know, Kyle says you declined, and once again on the next page, John says yes, and Kyle eventually says, "Okay, let's just for the sake of argument, let's pretend they asked about me next." And John replies, "Fair enough. I love it. I think Winnick is doing a great job, not only getting the voice of Kyle down, but also instilling John Jones, the Martian Manhunter, with a bit of humor too. You know." I like I like it when John is the serious, stoic, sort of brains of the JL opera, JLA operation, but when he shows his little bit of dry humor, it really makes the character all that more enjoyable for me. 
page four, panel four, we get a panel here where we see that Terry is going to the New York Gay and Lesbian Youth Center to try and figure out everything that's going on in his life. And I, I really like this. It's a nice way to get him into the story and progress, progress his acceptance of who he is. Uh, Winnick's really doing a great job of developing this character. And since last issue, when he actually came to terms of his sexuality, that now he's going and trying to meet with other people who are having the same sort of maybe problems and confusion and who probably had the same feelings of isolation that Terry has. It's, it's really great that he, we're getting to see this in this character. I'm, I'm wanting to see where all this goes and it's, it's a nice way to just sort of in one, a couple of panels lead off where this character has been. So good stuff here. Pages five through eight. We get some nice banter here written by Winnick for Jenny and Kyle, except at the end where Kyle says, Mr. Scott warp nine Engage. Um, sorry, but that's two separate eras of Star Trek, Kyle. And although Jenny calls him a nerd for mentioning it, it would have worked out better if she would have called him a nerd for mixing his captains. Because I don't think Kirk ever told anyone to engage. That's the other guy. Pages 9 through 10. Yes, this is, like I said at the beginning, essentially the whole Israeli thing put into a funny book. I'm not certain how it's going to turn out. I'm not certain if I'm going to like it, but I'm holding off judgment until the end of the story. So we'll see. Right now it is it is pretty apparent that they're going for the whole, well, this person or the, these people were set up as a country placed in the middle of these this country where people lived who had a conflict with them and they started a territorial war and there was terrorism. So... Yeah, we'll we'll see how all of this progresses. Page 12, we get a kind of an amusing page with some cute sight gags, like a censored bar covering up Jenny's breast on this page, as this is a, well, a topless beach. At least Jenny feels that she can go topless. So there's, you know, a censored bar covering up things, and then later on in the next panel, there's a dove that flies by and shoes away the censored bar, which in its own right covers up her her breasts, so yeah, a bit of cleverness there. Plus, also on the page, there's a mention of Jenny's plant-like connections, as she was the daughter of the villainous Thorn. Unfortunately, that reminds me of that awful story in Green Lantern's Secret Files and Origins number two, so we're going to be moving right along. Page 14, I think it's uh, specifically nice that the aliens are accustomed to eating Earth food, which means Cal and Jenny won't have to suffer through bouts on the Tendaxian crapper because of eating strange alien food. However, I will wonder where Jenny and Kyle got the uh, tuxedo and uh, ball gown as well. They didn't seem to be carrying anything along with their uh, Green Lantern costumes, and they don't seem to be ring construct elements e either, so there you go. Maybe maybe they provided uh, provided these clothes for them. Who knows? Plus, down at the bottom of the page, I said that Kyle and Alias's daughter were playing Xbox, and it's not necessarily that. It's more akin to a sort of Rock'em Sock'em Robots meets Street Fighter with holograms. So, you know, just he's playing with the kids and showing that he's he's a bit more accessible than Hal Jordan would be. I couldn't see Hal Jordan doing this with a alien, you know, with the siblings of some alien that he just met. Page 16, as Jenny's talking to Ilias about his past and how he had a sort of terrorist connections, 
you kind of get from this page that his motives might not might not be wholly altruistic. There seems to be something set up here making out him as the one who might have caused all of this, and I'm not certain this could just be a hunch gone wrong, but from the way it's framed here and from the way the character is acting, you kind of got a hint that something maybe a little hinky with things going on with him. Pages 18 and 19, and this is where I'll have to commend Dale Eaglesham for his artistic uh, design here. The explosion on these two pages is both beautiful and horrible at the same time. Um, beautiful in the fact that it's so well rendered, but horrible in the same aspect, because this is a destruction that shows a lot of buildings being leveled. Uh, it's just this giant reddish-orange cloud, and down at the bottom you see debris smashing into people and a person trying to shield himself from the blast. It really conveys the terror of some sort of act like this going on, and it's it's very effective. It's much better artwork seeing Eagle Sham doing here, or seeing what Eagle Sham's done here than we did in the previous issue in 136. So I, I may... Uh, May have to. I uh, may start actually liking Will Sham stuff, and you know he's obviously progressed pretty well as he's still doing wonderful stuff in the Sinestro books. However, I will kind of ding the book here for this image on page twenty-one. We get an image of Jenny crouched down, holding the body of uh, a dead alien child, and it's very powerful. It's meant to be somewhat, probably somewhat evocative of the image that we saw coming out of Oklahoma City the uh, Murrah building bombing where you saw the firefighter carrying the body of one of the children out of that. So it's when used in context, I think it would be more effective, but right here, at least to me, it seems a bit cloying. It seems like a little bit too much of a trying to tug at your heartstrings rather than actually being organically put in there. And especially it's not quite a full-page splash. If that were the case, I would definitely see this, but it kind of rides that line. How about we just leave it at that? But that's all the uh, that's all the notes I have for the ad, the the issue. Um, not bad. I'm kind of concerned how it's going to be going, how they're going to handle the whole conflict between these two factions, and how they you know breach the subject of terrorism, but. It could be really good. Again, I've heard good things about the Winnick run, so I'm willing to withhold judgment until you know I actually read it. But I'm not with willing. I'm not willing to withhold judgment on the ads in here. Let's see what kind of crap they have to sell. On the front inside cover, this is a weird one. It's an advertisement for Edge Active Care Skin Gel. It's uh, basically the gel shaving cream, and it's got an image of a razor filled with a uh, shaving foam on there that says lift dirt and oil off your face without annoying things like effort. So I guess they're promote. I guess they're finally realizing that kids aren't reading comics anymore. People old enough to shave are reading comics now. So there you go. Comics aren't for kids anymore. But then again, we get the antithesis of that as we get the tobacco is wacko. If you're a teen ad, so comics are for kids, but they're not because kids who shave. Maybe it's just for kids who shave. Did you have any kids like I had? I had a guy like that in in my uh, junior high who had almost a full beard. Weird. Maybe maybe this comic book was for him. You never know. 
The next page is a weird ad with a sort of Britney Spears ponytailed, you know, tied up blouse girl holding a Chupa Chup, which uh, has the advertisement up at the top saying Chupa Chups, Hula Hoops, sound the same, but one's easier to get into your mouth. Oh, oh my. Um, yeah, that's, uh, it's, I guess, some sort of lollipop thing. I don't know. After that, there's another page for corn nuts, surprisingly hardcore corn snacks in seven mean flavors, as you see the corn nuts uh, pretending to be the sons of anarchy as they ride on their Easy Rider Harley Davidsons and almost run over a rabbit. So, yeah, corn nuts are extreme. Then, next couple of pages, you get an abstract ad of giant starburst beaming up people into the middle of them via orange and yellow beams. I don't get it. Starburst, get your juices flowing. So, yeah, if the uh, Chupa Chups wasn't suggestive enough, yeah, get your juices going should let you know what they're trying to market. Then we get another another odd advertisement here. It's an advertisement for a book, Cirque du Freak, The Living Nightmare by Darren Sean. Um, I remember this was turned into kind of a failed movie, it was supposed to be uh, something to akin to Harry Potter, but it just never caught on as much as Harry Potter did. But eh, that's interesting that they actually are advertising books inside a comic book. That's kind of a neat concept. Something I haven't seen in actually quite a while in this comic. Then after a couple more pages, we get an advertisement for Skittles, and it's, of course, Skittles Taste in Rainbow, except this one is sort of a image of maybe an Incan hieroglyph or whatever you'd call it, stone carving in, in one of the walls of, say, one of their pyramids that shows these two people looking down at the ground at a beam of rainbow colors shooting out of that. It could also be something else as well, rather than Skittles, but, you know, you, you make your own metaphors there. Then, of course, to show that the uh, Green Lantern comic is hip and cool, we get an advertisement on the next page for CSS, the world's largest skateboard shop that you can go to at css.com. Don't know if they're still online. Don't really care, because I can't skateboard at all. At all. Then after that, we get the first, ad, the first house ad in the book, and it's for Green Arrow, the uh, Kevin Smith, Phil Hester, Andre Parks, and Matt Wagner one. And it says in this issue four, the Emerald Archer meets the JLA, so... You know, I know Phil Hester and Kevin Smith went on to work on the uh, Six Million Dollar Man book, and that was actually pretty good. And I've heard good things about the uh, Green Arrow run. And however, Kevin Smith nowadays, mm, okay. Then after that, we get another house ad for Superman. Where is thy sting? And it says he's faced death before, but never like this. And it says it's a chilling prestige format special by J.M. DeMatteis and Liam McCoury McSharp. Never heard of this. It's sort of got painted art with Superman in the foreground uh, looking kind of Christopher Reeve, but not overly photo-referenced with a giant black skull in the background. Uh, it says the Grim Reaper, Reaper comes from the Man of Steel this May. Hmm, hopefully, hopefully eventually Jeffrey and Michael will be able to cover this on From Crisis to Crisis. The back inside cover has peanut butter advisory, unexpected content. It's for Twix peanut butter, so 
if you weren't uh, down with just Twix with caramel, now Twix has peanut butter in it. Delicious. And the back inside, back outside cover is for Berry Panic Tang. I guess kind of a, a, another flavor that they're trying to make for Tang that's supposed to be like Capri Sun. <sighs> Skateboarding orangutans. That's that's what sells sells beverages nowadays. Nice. But that does it for the comic. I'm going to go take another break, get another drink, hopefully not one that's an adult beverage, and when I come back, we're going to take a look at Circle of Fire number two. See how that story wraps up. Two true freaks just got a little more random. Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that looks at everything random in the world of popular culture, is now on the Two True Freaks Network. Every episode is something different. Movies, comics, television, music. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Pop Culture Affidavit, the sworn testimony of a dork, at twotruefreaks.com and popcultureaffidavit.com. Greetings, podcast listener. Do you like... Or maybe... Dragon How about... Or... In the year 1999, an abandoned alien battle fortress crash-landed on the planet Earth. Our most brilliant scientists and engineers spent the next ten years reconstructing the damaged ship and studying its highly advanced space technology called Robotech. Do you remember... Our Star Blazers! Or this... The year is after Colony 195. As the world constantly changes in the chaotic era, there are two mobile suits that could turn humans into the ultimate weapon. The Wing Zero, and the Epion. Or maybe even this. After the desire for blood rules all, the only hope left is the one they call D. Or this. Gene, grappler ships dead ahead! It wouldn't be fun otherwise. Let's do it! Or... If Cardus is allowed to be reborn, she'll destroy Marmo as well as Lodos. Or have you seen the latest episode of... And just like that, everything changed. At that terrible moment, in our hearts, we knew home was a pen. Humanity, cattle. If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you should check out Anime Freaks, hosted by Dr. Bill Robinson and me, Gene Hendricks. Anime Freaks is a monthly podcast covering all things anime. It is available at twotruefreaks.com and on iTunes under Two True Freaks Presents Anime Freaks. And we're back. And once again, you heard a couple of new promos there. One for a podcast that you all should have been listening to, Pop Culture Affidavit, which is now at twotruefreaks.com, as well as Anime Freaks, a new podcast from Dr. Bill Robinson and Gene Hendricks that's going to be covering all sorts of anime shows. Right now they're going through the Star Blazers series, and I've really been enjoying that. You know, I, I just realized that all the promos that I played this episode are for two true freak shows that don't star Scott Gardner or Chris Honeywell. 
because that just shows the variety of shows you can find here on Two True Freaks. So, yes, this is the greatest nerdcast site on the planet. Bar none. But shameless self-promotion over with. Let's go ahead and move into our last book this time out. It's Green Lantern, Circle of Fire number two. This one was cover dated late October 2000 and released on August 30th of 2000. Cover price was $375 US and $575 Canada, and the title was Full Circle. The writer was Brian Capon, penciler was Robert Ternashi, inker was Claude Sadovan, letter was Sean Conant, the colorist was Shannon Blanchard, separations were by Jameson, assistant editor was Frank Berrios, and the editor was Matt Adelston. The cover this time out was done by Daryl Banks and Kevin Nolan. At the former side of the planet Oa, Green Lantern Kyle Rayner and Green Lantern Alex DeWitt ponder why Oblivion is just sitting there, chillaxing all Thanos-like. Kyle thinks that he might not consider them a threat, but soon he'll think otherwise as he prepares to take him down. But all of a sudden, Kyle feels weak and Alex said that they should wait for backup. Of course, this is when the various members of the Green Lantern Corps and their accompanying Justice League heroes start showing up for a confab. Firestorm says there was no such thing as the Omega option, Adam Strange mentions finding a power battery, the Adam shows an image of the Emerald Knight that Kyle drew as a kid, prompting Kyle to tag him as the one who would betray them. Firestorm asks why Kyle would think that, and he relates his run-in with the Spectre and the ominous foreshadowing of a mole in the room. This sets heroes against each other, which feeds Oblivion with their chaotic thoughts, allowing him to unleash hundreds of raids to attack the heroes. The Lanterns engage, with Green Lightning sharing the Speed Force with Adam Strange to give him rapid-fire abilities, the Manhunter directing Firestorm to transform the remnants of O into explosives, and the Twin Lanterns to create giant musketeers to face the foe. But Oblivion saps Forrest, destroying the young boy and dashing the hope of our heroes. However, Power Girl and the Emerald Knight arrive in time to save Hunter and Adam from the blast. Fed up with the loss of life, Kyle heads towards Oblivion, only to get swallowed in his ebon cloak. This sucks Kyle into an altered dimension, where he meets his estranged father, whom Kyle accuses of manipulating his ring to create Oblivion. But a sock to his father's face and reveals that the actual entity that is Oblivion is simply the evil version of his psyche. After the death of Alex, Kyle subconsciously willed the ring to expel all his negative emotions, which in turn formed itself into Oblivion. Kyle says, no, that's impossible, but Oblivion tells him to search his feelings, and he'll know that it's true, and if he would give in to the power of the dark side, they could rule the galaxy as well. Well, the comparisons end there as evil Kyle pushes good Kyle off the platform they were standing on. This saps Kyle back to reality, where the assembled heroes question what happened to him in Oblivion. Kyle comes clean and says that not only is Oblivion a, a creation of his, but so are all the other lanterns. The Manhunter was his logic, Green Lightning was his hope for the future, Emerald Knight was his bravery, and Hunter and Forest were his imagination, and Alex was the love of his life. And now, keeping all these entities in existence is taking a toll on Kyle, and he has to let them all go. Saying their farewells, the lanterns fade away into flumes of emerald energy. But Oblivion still remains, taunting Kyle all along to allow him to take control as he creates a massive neutron star to wipe out the universe. Kyle tells the heroes to destabilize the star while he goes after Oblivion again. Luckily, through imagination, science, and comics, 
The team eliminate the exploding threat while Kyle makes his final stand on Earth with Oblivion. Allowing the despot to enter his mind, Kyle demands that Oblivion release JLA, and once he has, Kyle summons the magical memory lanterns to keep Oblivion captured inside his mind. Crisis averted, Kyle eventually meets with the rest of the League to tender his resignation. But the League say that every one of them has had to tackle their own inner demons, and it's the way that they confront their dark side that defines him as a hero. So his resignation is denied. Saying he passed a trial that even Hal Jordan failed that, Superman welcomes Green Lantern to the first day of the rest of his life. Okay, for a strong opening with a great premise and some good stories in between, this ending was kind of a letdown. I'd figured that Kyle created all the lanterns as well as Oblivion, but in the end it was just one of those believe in yourself and you're super okay stories. It wasn't bad per se, but I expected more, especially from Brian K. Vaughn. The art here by Robert Ternashi or Taranashi was a big step down from Norm Brayfogle, but when you start with Brayfogle, there's really not that much room for improvement. Overall, I would have to say it was a good series with a kind of lackluster ending. In fact, I even communicated with Shag, and he mentioned when he was on the Firestorm uh, section of this show that he kind of felt the same way. In fact, he sent me a little note to read one second. Here, pulling it up, he says, It drove me nuts that Kyle created this ridiculous and even murderous villain, even subconsciously. Kyle should have been overcome with grief afterwards for all the destruction and ruined lives. It was a terrible thing to do to his character, and then promptly forget about it. And I've got to assume that this Circle of Fire storyline, aside from minor mentions in the book, really doesn't play all that much into Kyle's character. So, yeah, that is kind of disappointing if that's the case. But... I guess we'll have to see. But despite my misgivings, and obviously Shag's misgivings about the show, I will probably have some positive things to say. Uh, first of all, the cover. It's a nice cover by Banks and uh, who is it? Is it Faber here? No, sorry, it's Kevin Nolan. It, it's nice enough. It's a very Christ-like pose with uh, all the other lanterns playing Ring Around the Rosie with him. So yeah, whatever that is page one we see oblivion or thanos or dark side or whoever you know they're all sitting on these giant granite thrones overseeing their minions or whatever they're doing it's it's kind of a trope of these evil villains that i'm just kind of bored with right now on page three the manhunter robot tells kyle that the omega option does not exist anywhere in the real universe Hence, saying that the Manhunter robot and Firestorm checked everywhere in the known universe. Yeah, I think they might be fibbing a little bit there. 
pages four through six, this is essentially just the book getting all the characters that appeared in all the other books together and having them compile all their data and give ex exposition. Because as Jeffrey Taylor has said so many times before, it's exposition. It has to go somewhere. Page nine, panel two, we see Adam Strange pulling his gun out to shoot at these demons or minions or whatever the heck they are that Oblivion has unleashed. And his gun looks very un-sci-fi. It, it looks almost like a handgun with a silencer on it. It's it, obviously Tendarian or Tendashian or Terranashi, whatever his name is, didn't get the idea that Adam Strange is a sci-fi hero and should have a sci-fi hero gun, but there we go. Plus on page 10, there's a panel down here at the bottom where his helmet looks all wonky as well. It looks... It just looks weird. It's hard to explain. It looks more flat than kind of the angular thing or the sort of headpiece. It's... He looks like a, he looks like the kid in the helmet. He looks like he's wearing the helmet not because he plays hockey, but because he doesn't play hockey. Tom Panarese will know what I'm talking about. Page 13, we do get a pretty brutal death scene here for Forrest. It's... It's not, hor well, it is horrific, but it's not gory. It's essentially a giant sort of orange and yellow explosion in the background with the sort of remains of forest skull and, you know, bones being split apart. In fact, it's kind of eerie that his, the top part of his skull is being sort of shadowed and uh, only illuminated through the uh, nose and eye sockets while his jawbone is flying off above it. It's, it's a nice disturbing image but not not overly gory and it's one of those things that you know i i prefer it's it's horrific but it's not distasteful if that makes any sense so but it it does uh cement the fact that oblivion is evil so there you go moving on to page 15 uh where did the emerald knight find winged victory because this sure doesn't look like a construct i mean I don't mind them giving the constructs a bit of shading to give it some definition, but when you're creating a construct, a ring construct in Green Lantern, it needs at least to be green, and none of this is green. It's all white. The bridle and the you know the straps around is I don't know whatever the, the, the reins, they're all colored natural colors. Even the hooves are colored natural colors. So. It just bugs me when they don't realize that constructs should look like constructs, but that's just me. Pages 16 through 21, this is all just the pretty played out good self-image versus bad self-image with each version either wearing all white or all black. The dialogue is okay, but it's pretty standard. I'm more powerful than you. Think of what we could do together. We could rule the galaxy as father and son, sort of gibberish. And it just feels kind of weak coming from a writer as good as Brian K. Vaughn. Pages 22 through 25, we get some more exposition with Kyle spelling out what the parts of his psyche all the lanterns were based on, and then it's time to say goodbye to all of them. And thankfully, all of them essentially realize that they have to go, except for Green Lightning, for whom she really doesn't feel that she's a part of his psyche and that she actually exists. So, Kyle's look at the future doesn't want to go away. I don't 
make your own judgment calls on that. Page 27, and we get a giant MacGuffin at the end of the story with this neutron star that Oblivion created to give the Justice Leaguers, the B-less Justice Leaguers, something to do to prove that they're A-less material. And it, it works, but it just it seems like they're sort of padding the story out a bit. Page 31, Kyle threatens to kill himself with a ring construct gun in order to stop Oblivion, which I guess would work, but okay, sure, why not? Comics. Page 32, the Atom gives some sort of comic booky explanation how he's going to stop the explodey star by using uh, Adam Strange's Zeta radiation to move to the center of it to cause it to dissipate. It's, like I said, comics, so best not thought about for very long. Then on page 36, here's the thing I think that just kind of bugs me about this story. On this final page, Kyle brings back the lanterns to take down Oblivion in his mind, and the way Kyle says that he's taking down Oblivion is by just having to grow up, and that belittles all of the all of the stuff that Kyle has done before this. Kyle has matured. He has grown up. He's not the youthful, brash, sort of self-centered person that we saw in Green Lantern number 51. He is a great hero, and the story just kind of takes him back a few steps. And it's disappointing because it started out with such great potential and kind of ended on this really sour note. But there is a final moment here where uh, Superman says that uh, you've... You know, you've survived a rite of passage that destroyed your predecessor, Kyle. In the end, Hal Jordan didn't have the strength to resist the temptation of absolute power. I'm sure he'd be proud to know what you did. And, uh, yeah, but the, uh, the Spectre is watching over the Watchtower right now, and he can probably hear you, Superman. So, do you really want to P.O. the Spectre by saying that he was a failure? I don't think so. Don't make the Spectre mad. <sighs> But yeah, a kind of lackluster ending to an overall good story that just made it sort of average out to be average. Sad, really. But hopefully next time our issue will be a little better than this, as we're going to be taking a look at Green Lantern number 139, the next part in the Away From Home storyline. Plus we're going to be taking a look at a prestige format book, Green Lantern 1001 Emerald Knights. It's the tale of Sherzade, or however you pronounce that person, and Green Lantern, all mashed together. So basically an Elseworlds story. And I might possibly having another guest host on. Who might it be? Well, we'll have to find out next time. I hope you'll come back for another episode in one week of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. Until then, bye everyone. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respected copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books could be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, 
which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers, and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys Podcast, and you can subscribe to the show there. You can search for me on Facebook as well, and now you can find me there, as it was a requirement of my new Demonsacore contract. But it doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Candy Crush group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and cut back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greenlander. The opening music for today's show was Round and Round by the Imagine Dragons, off their album Night Visions. Again, like all the music you hear on Just One of the Guys, this music can be purchased at a number of places. However, of course, the best place to purchase it would be Amazon.com. And the best way to get to Amazon.com, as always, is by using the link at 2 Every time you go to the homepage at 2TrueFreaks.com and click on the banner in the upper left-hand corner, a small amount of the purchase price for anything that you buy at Amazon goes back to the 2TrueFreaks website. You don't see anything extra come out of your pocket, but it really does help some great podcasts out. So, if you're ever planning on buying music, especially Imagine Dragons, because, frankly, they're awesome, please make sure that you use the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to buy the music from Amazon.